Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Qualcomm. Today we have Desi Bell. Desi Bell is a founder that has tackled the the really difficult sector of retail and retail tech and dealing with uh, a, a fickle group of people who can you know like a product one day and the next day they've moved on to the next really cool thing. And today we're going to uncover the story of how she's managed to keep a clientele that's really happy and loyal, but starting from a background of non-retail having worked at the LSE, at the Ministry of Sound, and had worked a little bit as an investment banker. So welcome to the podcast, Desi. Hey, Carlos. Thanks for having me. Um, I love what you guys are doing. I love uh, the, the Powering Women movement that you guys are promoting at Zagora, so I want to learn all about that. But first, let's talk about your background. Um, you, know, you were sharing with me earlier that you had worked in uh, investment banking for six years, but before that, you had given Ministry of Sound a go, uh, and decided it wasn't for you. So, so walk us through that. So I went to uh, LSE. Um, I did economics and economic history, but I always wanted to um, be entrepreneurial in some sense. And at the LSE, I founded the Women in Business Society, which was all about you know helping women discover different career paths um, and ma- you know making their own choices. Um, and after LSE, I went into the Ministry of Sound. It sounded like an interesting opportunity. It was an entrepreneurial environment. Um, I had the opportunity to launch a clothing business for them, and I always had uh, interest in fashion. As a, when I was younger, I toyed with the idea of going to Central St. Martins. Um, but, you know, I was in factories being 21, launching products, learning all about production, um, supply chain, logistics. How do you market a product? How do you come with a concept? So it was a fantastic experience. Um, but it was just not for me. And I decided to go into investment banking, which I guess was the more traditional path um, after LSE. Um, and I spent six very happy years at JP Morgan co- covering uh, Russian and Ukrainian clients. I guess my background was quite helpful because I do speak Russian. So it was a great time to be in the region because um, there were a lot of interesting deals, restructurings. You know, the Russian debt market was booming, which is what I was covering. Um, but then again, I kept on coming back to the idea of wanting to be an entrepreneur and um, wanting to run my own business, being, you know, master of my own destiny. Um, and when I was getting married in 2008, which was really about three years into my experience at JP Morgan, um, I had one week to get ready for the wedding. Uh, I had a, during that year something like 15 deals in a two-person team, so it was very busy. <laughs> I literally had no time to take off, get ready, you know, you know, look great. Uh, and I figured I'm not the only woman who has the challenge of being busy, but wanting to get more out of a workout and look great. And really sort of this idea of efficiency with time when you're trying to, um, you know, pay attention to your health uh, was born. But then there wasn't anything on the market that can help me achieve my results. So I sort of went on a quest to try and find a product. Um, and, you know, it's amazing what you can do in your spare time on flights back in, you know, to and from Moscow. I was doing a lot of research. People always ask me, how did you come up with a product? It was a case of just, you know, how much information you can find online is just remarkable. You know, scientific research that's publicly available. Um, yeah, and then really trying to map that to a product which you think is useful and really, you know, taking a leap of faith. Um, and that's really how Hot Pants was born sort of three years later. 
So if we look at the sector and with your investment banking hat on, the sector has some challenges. One of them is the challenge of inventory and getting the product wrong and sitting on inventory you cannot get rid of. Uh, the other challenge is the the nature of, of retail and fashion in general, which is one day you're a hit, one day you're not. You know, the, the cycles for fashion are shifting so quickly now yeah. that I heard recently a stat that like there's 20 seasons in a year as opposed yeah. to just the usual four. Yeah. And, you know, with your back, with your banking hat on, you must have looked at this and said, okay, yes, it is a passion project. I do wish I, I had better, you know, calling for, for a couple of, of, of circumstances. But is this the best business really for me to get into? Like, is, is, aren't there other ideas or, or you're like, oh, I have an idea that will overcome all these things or did you just go into it? You know what? I don't care. I'm just going to do it. Well, your point about fashion is a, you know, something that I actually agree with. And when I think about our business, we're not actually a fashion business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would agree that actually being in fashion is extremely challenging for a number of reasons. As you say, consumers are fickle, trends come and go. Um, at the same time, I think supply chain uh, generally in fashion is extremely outdated. So it takes a remarkably long time to get a product to market from product development, testing to manufacturing, um, uh, you know, shipping things. Um, but we are not a fashion business. We are very much a utility. We provide a utility product that happens to be a clothing product, but actually our customers think about us as a get fit aid. Um, and so to that extent, I think it's easier for us to make a proposition to the consumer that's um, that's interesting because we provide a clear benefit. So you buy a hot pants, you burn more calories when you work out. You know, if you're somebody that's trying to lose weight, we help you lose weight when you work out. We have a million products sold. We have a, you know, a, a community of, uh, of half a million women online. These are all things which validate our proposition. We've done clinical studies. I think in a fashion context, I agree with you, it would be a lot more challenging because it's, you know, what's the utility? Does the, this pair of pants mm. appeal to you or does it not appeal to you? And I think that has also helped us to, yeah, the point about, you know, challenges with inventory to somewhat stay leaner um, than your traditional apparel retailer. Um, so we carry at the moment 30 products. Um, there was a time when we expanded our inventory selection significantly. So at one point we had 130,000 units in stock. Um, uh, but what we have found is that our customers really look at us much more as a utility product, not as a fashion proposition. So for us, the ability to get the customer to come back, to come back, comes into, you know, our health food, you know, offering and really offering people more and more things which can help them keep in shape rather than the latest, um, the, let, the latest apparel trend. So I'm going to push back on that, Desi, because, you know, if I go to your website, yeah. there's a lot of content that would seem to imply that there is a functional mm-hmm. element, you know, the, the, you talk about Thermofit and you talk yeah. about some of the, the benefits that maybe other brands don't focus on as much. Yeah. But there is a, a, a huge amount of, of, of content that you guys have, Instagram and the like, yeah. that sort of highlight a, a lifestyle or highlight how this is part of a lifestyle and therefore yeah. like it's almost a representation of that lifestyle. Yeah. And I guess if you, if you see your product as entirely functional, um, are we living in an age now where functionality is fashion and as a consequence you might be calling it function, but that is the actual fashion, that we are in a state where people talk about functionality as the fashionable thing like as leisure wear as a functional fashion type thing and you were just one of the first few that were ahead of the curve and then others like lululemon and and the like were also kind of as part of that wave but in the u.s so 
would you argue, would you continue to argue that this is not a fashion product or would you say that it definitely has an element of that? And the reason why I'm pushing on this is partially because I understand how you navigate that, that sea of Me Too products, lookalikes, the Lululemons of the world. And as a founder, how do you stay awake and knowing that you're being chipped away at from all angles? Well, firstly, I am extremely flattered to be compared to Lululemon, but we are really, you know, Lululemon is just, you know, uh, so much bigger than us. But I think what's important to recognize about the consumer is that it's the consumer today expects a lot. So they want to have the fashion element when they wear our products. They want to look fashionable. They want to look, you know, be able to go from brunch to the school run to the gym. But at the same time, they also expect to have the utility element. And when I think about the universe of athleisure brands, I mean, there literally is a new athleisure brand popping up every day and they all look the same. They all feel the same. They all seem to have a very similar proposition in terms of the social following, you know, the lifestyle, the wellness. Um, And for us, really, the differentiation comes from the fact that our product actually delivers better results. And while the customer expects for the product to look just as well as your pair of Lululemon leggings or Vali leggings or, you know, whichever fashion brand you happen to to be a fan of. Um, we have a unique proposition in that if you are somebody who is active and looking to get, you know, in a 30-minute workout better results, it's a gourd that's going to help you deliver those results. And for us, it's about positioning ourselves as the go-to brand for somebody who's looking to get healthier and get better results and look better. Mm. Uh, and it's always about that little bit extra. So we're going to help you get a little bit extra from your time when you work out. Our, you know, health foods will help you get a better breakfast in an easier way. Our superfood mixes will help you get, you know, more fruit and veg in your diet. It's all about making it easier for the consumer because we recognize that the modern woman in particular has so many demands on her time um, that anything that we can help her would be, uh, you know, would be a useful thing. So if we go back to the early days where you had this idea of a functional centric product and you had prototypes and you needed to go find people mm-hmm. and you needed to talk about it. Walk us through those those days. I'm assuming you look back on them fondly and think, oh my goodness, if I had only known this or that. Walk us through what that was like and then how it evolved to what it is today. Well, worth mentioning that in the early days we were purely a function product. So mm-hmm. our fashion proposition was you know, much inferior to what it is today. It was literally just a pair of black pants in four sizes, and here you are. You can help get. You can get better results when you work out. Um, we, you know, I had done research for three years, sort of reading. You know, and then at the end we just decided, okay, let's go for it. Malcolm and I were actually on holiday. We thought, well, let's give it a go. Um, it took us a while trying to find suppliers, and there's somebody who's outside of the, you know, the apparel space i think it's worth noting that if you don't have the connections these days you have things like alibaba there are a number of other platforms that it's remarkable what you can find and you know people are open for business um so it took us a bit of throttling through you know talking to different suppliers getting different samples but at the end we we found a supplier that actually we work with to this day um and then trying to you know find customers for the product it was literally about following our gut instinct and figuring out well if i was a consumer what would i do so the first first thing that we wanted to do was go on Facebook and say, you know, all our friends are going to start talking about hot pants and then they'll tell all their friends. And then before you know it, a million people will be talking about us. But as it turns out that, you know, people, if they don't have an immediate utility into something, even your friends are not necessarily willing to spread the word for you. So then we turned to Twitter, which is we literally would spend 
you know, two, three months going through Twitter, trying to directly message people, you know, to the point of, you know, doing things that don't scale, um, messaging directly consumers who we could find who were in the, you know, stage of their life that they were looking to lose weight or get in shape or whatever and say, hey, do you want to try a pair of hot pants? And, you know, people would think like, you know, different kind of hot pants. You know, Malcolm was uh, often tells a story that when he was messaging women, they wanted to sort of report him to the police. Um uh, but, you know, at the end, we managed to find 500 consumers that were willing to try hot pants and help us spread the word for it. And then it literally started from there. Facebook at the time was very different. So obviously we were able to get a lot more um, buzz through Facebook by, by word of mouth. But as a young business, we started on Facebook. Um, and it was about testing. It was about asking people, you know, you know, our first most popular post on Facebook ever was, should we do a pair of hot pants with a zip or without a zip? And we had something like 50,000 responses to that because at the time we had a hundred thousand followers on, on Facebook. Um, so I think it's something that we have kept to this day, which is we listen to our customers and where we seek feedback from our customers. So if customers tell us that, you know, they want us to make a product that has certain features, then we'll go ahead and do that. Um, and that relationship with our consumer base has helped us to maintain a business that has a loyal following and, um, uh, you know, build our social presence online as well. Hmm. You know, when, when you were starting off with those early sort of focus groups, did um, they have a direct feedback that would iterate the product within three months, six months, nine months? Uh, did you just have to get rid of all the inventory? Walk us through some of the iterations, early product iterations. I mean, for us, we were, it was really not, as structured, it was literally like, you know, we'll buy as little product as we can now, test it out, which was like, I think a thousand units or 3000 units. It was our first batch. We'll test it out. We'll sell that. We get the feedback. We go back, you know, we hire a designer. The designer help us redesign the product. But what we were lucky with, and it's something that, you know, if we were in a traditional fashion vertical, I think would be more challenging for us is that our supply chain is fairly lean. So we're able to actually get you know, product to market in sort of four to eight weeks, which um, in your traditional fashion, you know, vertical, you're looking at, you know, two to three, four months, unless you have, you know, an onshore production, which very few people do. And obviously there, there are cost implications for that. So the, the fact that we had a supplier to whom our business was a significant amount of their revenue, they're willing to work with us, they're willing to turn things around quickly, iterate actually was... Um, was, you know, very helpful for us. And in the early days of our business, we actually pre-sold a lot of product, which then meant that our customers were financing our business. So to this day, we don't have external financing. Um, but again, because our product was unique, people were willing to wait for it. We were upfront with them. You know, we said, you've got to wait four weeks. People were willing to do that. Um, our supplier was able to turn things around and really that's how we started. Hmm. And if, if today you were to start all over again, is there any lessons that you've learned from the, the years of, of operating Zagora that you look back that would have spared you that first year worth of, of time? I would say the number one lesson that we have learned is, and it's obvious, but you know, uh, is really that the customer is always first. And so in the early days, the one thing that we were not prepared for is the uh, speed with which our business took off in the first year. Um, so our first business plan, I remember we were talking, sitting, talking to Royal Mail, who was our, you know, logistics provider at the time. Like, you know, if we sell 5,000 units a month, 6,000 units in the first year, that would be amazing. Um, we ended up selling something like 250,000 units in our first year. So, and we weren't ready from an operational point of view. You know, when the demand came, we were like, go, 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 go. Um, whereas I think what we really should have done is, 
you know, thought, can our operations take this? Can we fulfill to people in the right way? Is the, you know, warehouse able to actually deliver on timely fulfillment? What happens if any of the shipments are late? You know, how are people going to be impacted if, you know, our production, which we're telling them is on pre-order, actually is going to be delayed? Um, so, you know, if I'm starting a business today, I would make sure that everything that needs to be done from an operational point of view is there before you actually and it's a bit of a chicken and egg question because yes you can spend a long time optimizing your operations but then if the demand is not there then what do you do um but i certainly think making sure that the customer experience is great um from from the beginning is something that's very important and i think it comes down to the fact that consumers these days from the you know proliferation of people like amazon um, and other retailers that deliver this amazing customer experience if you're looking for you know for speed reliability you know everything just working the consumer is so used to that the ability to you know process return i mean just you know the whole it infrastructure is incredible um that the consumer is so used to that experience that they don't really care whether you're a small brand or not um and as a small brand you just have to go above and beyond that experience to be able to create loyalty because otherwise customers go to amazon so if you put your banker hat back on what if you had to analyze a business in this space like yourselves what are the bits that you would look for to see how would you divide the business up and then what bits would you look for to see whether the business had a chance so operationally does it you would would you analyze their 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 supply how many they get um, how many customer customer service agents they have you know what what would you look for as critical indicators of success of a retail company today as a banker um, I would look at, you know, well, firstly, you know, how's the supply chain, supply chain organized? How quickly does it take to get a product to market? What happens if a product runs out? How quickly can you replenish? Because that's obviously a key component when you're looking to grow. Um, for these, these, can you give like numbers roughly like for each one of these examples you just gave? Like what, what do you think would be impressive? It depends on which sector in, but, you know, are you able to get replenishment of 30 days or less if you're in a, you know, in the retail uh, sector? Um are you able to create, you know, get product to market from, you know, idea to initiation in 30 days or less? Um, and for that, you need to really have a very well optimized supply chain, you know, product development teams usually on shore, which, you know, a lot of brands don't necessarily have. Um, if you're looking at your, how do you acquire customers? You know, what is your customer acquisition cost versus your customer lifetime value? Um, how many different channels do you have for acquiring customers and one of your challenge channels dries up then, you know how are you going to continue growing your business um uh, what is your customer lifetime value what is your customer repeat rate um, these are all things that would be very important when you look at a when you look at a retail business um, and for us you know a lot of it we have learned the hard way so in the early days as i explained you know we had a lot of growth but a lot of the customers that we had during the first year would not be necessarily customers that we have today, partly because the experience wasn't there because we hadn't optimized our operations, whereas now we're laser focused on making sure, you know, we have a branded box and the customer gets the product, gets dispatched same day and, you know, everything arrives in a pristine condition and we seek feedback and, you know, all these things which are very important because at the end of the day, it's all about building trust. We are what is the customer interaction with us? They see an advert for Zagora typically, or somebody tells them about Zagora, they come to the website, they have a browse around the products, they think, oh yeah, this looks nice, I'm gonna go ahead and buy it. So they're giving us a chance. So the question is, how do you then build trust with that consumer so that, you know, whether they have a great experience or not so great experience, you maintain a good relationship because they might come and buy something from you again, you know, in the future. And that's really how we think about our, our, our business. It's mm -hmm. all about, you know, keeping the last customer happy. 
So earlier you mentioned how now you've merged both functionality and fashion. To, to some extent, it wasn't necessarily where you started off, but it is kind of where you're now because of the competitors that are around. How has that changed how you interact with influential social people? And how does that affect your product development life cycle now? So in terms of influencers, I think we influencers to you know to, to a large extent expect to be associated with a brand that stands for something that will also you know impact their brand in a positive way um, and so our interaction with influencers to a large extent depends on us preserving and maintaining strong brand presence for ourselves so making sure our creative is great making sure our web experience is great um, making sure we stand for the right things and, you know, making our customers aware of what we stand for and really looking after and preserving our brand. Um, in, in terms of our product development cycle, what we have found is that customers, when they find a product that they like, and particularly women looking for fashion related, you know, we are a functional product, but we still have fashion, you know, we need to look good. Um, for us, it's about making sure that the cut of the product, so the pan that we create is a pan that really fits in the most amazing way. The features are great. We optimize the cut of the pan, and then it's really about launching different colors, different prints, um, uh, you know, different detailing. But it's very much about iterating, finding things that work and styles that really work for a consumer, and then iterating with small variations on that. Because we find that if a consumer likes a particular pan, she might buy multiple types of that particular pant, not necessarily go and buy a top, for example, if she, she's not into that. Hmm. But, you know, you, you hear about um, people paying, you know, paying influentials and paying, you know, sponsors. I mean, is that is that just something that maybe beyond the scope of what you you guys do today, but is that is that kind of the, the inevitable state of things? Or, I mean, I've heard other people say on panels before that, you know, actually would never pay for influentials it ruins the whole dynamic of authenticity what's your thoughts on that well i mean i think it depends if you want to build a strong you know there is influentials are really a marketing channel so if you're looking for ways to get your product out there and if you know somebody who's an influencer has strong brand following and you're looking you know to to tap that brand following um, you know, it's a question of ROI, you know, what are you going to get if you get that exposure? It's just the same way that you are, you know, doing a display advert online or PPC ad online. It's about how much bang you're going to get for your buck. I think partnering with influencers works and we, you know, we've tried lots of different things, but when it really works is when there is an interesting partnership that can, can go beyond just a picture on Instagram. Um, and I think that would become even more so as perhaps, you know, the Instagram model changes with, you know, exposure being throttled for the purposes of generating ad revenue. Um, I think meaningful brand partnerships that can be syndicated, um, you know, in press, in other advertising would become a lot more of a valuable resource than simply, you know, hooking up with influencers for the sake of getting some pictures on social media. Um, I think influencers only work if you can syndicate the message, like any kind of marketing campaign, right? If you if you have a great press story, you've got to syndicate it to as many outlets as you can. If you've got a great campaign, you've got to syndicate it to as many, you know, the message is all about syndication. It's not so much about the actual branding as it is about getting it in front of as many people as possible to really get the benefit. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about syndication and, and the message, you know, the mm -hmm. message has evolved mm -hmm. from the origins of it being a very functional one. And now there's a couple of things that I've noticed. One of them is that you built a community yeah. of, of women that are really passionate about your product, but also passionate about 
empowering women. And so maybe you can walk us through both what that means in terms of a movement to you, mm-hmm. and also how do you how do you, how did you build this community? How do you keep that community engaged? So I mean, our community really was built over the years by. Um, as I said, engaging with our customers, finding out what is it the women women want in terms of, um, you know, staying in shape. How can we help them do that? You know, what kind of products can we build? And really, kind of having a very much an iterative discussion with our customers and what kind of products we can build, and always keeping our customers in, you know, invested in our brand um, through various ways. And for us, you know, from the moment when we started Zagora, it was about helping women get a better workout. And what that meant is. If you're somebody like, you know, me at the time who was an investment banker and I had half an hour to go to the gym, but I wanted to look great, then if I could help something, you know, if I could have something that would help me do that, then that would be amazing because that would make me feel better. I would probably invest more in my health, um, which meant that I could achieve more. And really our powering women message kind of goes back to that. We, through our products, help our customers be healthier in an easier way because we feel there's so much you know, clutter in the space of wellness today, you know, different diets, different, you know, personal trainers, everybody trying to push a message, whereas our consumer is somebody who doesn't necessarily have the time to sit there and throw for like the latest research on, you know, she just wants something that works and she just wants, you know, a product that can deliver her the results that she wants to trust the brand that provides that. So for us, it's about making it easier for our customers to, to do that. But at the same time, we recognize that, you know, we being in a Western society to a large extent is a you know stroke of luck. Why is it that I live here versus one of the women that we sponsor in Rajasthan who happens to be born in a more challenging part of the world? Um, and so through our Powering Women Giving program, we really help women in the developing world start small businesses and improve their health in that way because they live in challenging environments. They don't have access to education. A lot of the women that we work with are um, you know, illiterate, um, older. So how can we help them improve their lives by starting a small business and therefore benefiting not themselves only, but also their community, um, you know, their family. For every woman that we support, she would help between 10 and 20 members in her family or community because she'll start a small business, she'll be supporting her, you know, her immediate family, she'll be helping her community. Um, she might have, uh, you know, she might send her daughters to school to a longer, for a longer period of time, which obviously in the long term has a very positive effect. Um, so it goes back to one of our core beliefs that it's all about, you know, we live in a world together and we're here to help each other. And as a brand, that's what we try to do both through our products and through our giving program. So if I, if I take the, the spirit of your answer and I break it down into the execution side of things, how does this, how do you recommend to start to set up the foundation for a community? How do you continue to engage that community? How do you drive volume and and conversations and curate conversations and keep them alive and, and keep people inspired? I think you have to think about it from the point of view of, you know, a community can be a very ethereal sort of third person thing, right? The community. But in fact, it comes down to the individual people. So what do the individual members of your community actually want? We know that our individual customer wants an easier way to stay healthy. We know that she's a mum, she's busy, um, she has limited amount of time to actually spend on herself, but being healthy for her family is very important to her. And so therefore the content that we bring, the conversations that we have are very much about, you know, making her feel valued, um, you know, engaging through, you know, incentives, competitions, um, you know, providing her with content which is free but valuable. We're about to publish a, you know, demystifying nutrition guide online, which I know, you know, we know that our customers are looking for because when we've 
you know, experimented with things like that in the past has been something that's interesting for them. Um, so it goes back to just, you know, asking customers, carrying out surveys, um, you know, making sure that the content you provide is something that is rooted in what people are actually searching for, you know, doing SEO analysis, looking at what the trends of what people actually search for. So all the content that we actually create is based on search, um, you know, doing some research on search volumes and search queries because we actually look to provide things that are useful rather than just, you know, this is not about us. This is about creating a product and an offering that's useful to people. Um, and that's our fundamental view that that's the only way to stay in business is if you actually provide something that's useful for people and it's rooted in demand um, rather than sort of, you know, supply. Do you, I mean, do you, do you therefore, because it sounds like from what you just described that you're replying and engaging the community more through content, but not through uh, a closed forum or a, 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 an environment where you enable people to have more targeted conversations. You know, if you look at some brands that, that do that, like um, you know, GifGaf, um, they they have conversations, and customer the customer becomes the customer service mm-hmm, agent. Mm-hmm. And and I'm curious, do you when do you think it's necessary for a brand to own and and I won't, I don't want to say control or manage because mm-hmm. I don't think that's the right mm-hmm. spirit, but where they're part of that conversation in a, in a environment where it allows other people to communicate with customer service representatives and with the founders directly versus having it you know, be more of a content-driven, um, optimized around what people are reacting to, but more content-driven and, and social media responsive. Driving consumers to a closed environment where there is a, uh, you know, away from the traditional day-to-day way of engaging with friends and family, I think it's very challenging. Um, we are actually about to launch an app which will allow us to do a lot more of that which will be you know we'll be providing more content again useful information to people with the hope that actually consumers come to um, to our environment and engage there Um, until that time we continue doing that on social media because that's the natural environment where our consumers would engage so you know on a lot of our posts we'll have people you know sharing with their friends or saying oh my god I've you know bought these like Two years ago, mom, you got to get them, and you know that's kind of how, to a large extent, we, we engage with our with our consumer base is through traditional channels because that is where consumers are already. Um, pulling people away from their natural habitat into something else, um, we haven't worked out how to do that yet. Um, I hope someday we will, but I think that would become more and more challenging just because you know the the amount of information that people are overwhelmed with, the number of social networks that people are on already is just. You know, yeah, it's a lot, right? Yeah, and so, so I think you know you got to be where people fish where the fish are, basically. But but if that's the case, aren't you basically forcing your customer service function within the company to be both marketing and customer service at the same time, and to be both responsive to shipping and logistical demands, but also to being your your distributed workforce for marketing purposes? Because surely you yourself cannot be the sole person or your marketing person can be the sole person dealing with all social media community requests um yes for us the you know the way that we look at our customer service function is twofold so one we have you know obviously inbound and two outbound so inbound is people coming in and saying yes you know where's my stuff but we have optimized our uh, operations to the extent that we minimize those type of queries because everything is automated you know things come in shipments go out you know uh, so there, there's very little of that. What our customer service function really tries to do is um, engage on product requests and, you know, phone people, being able to find out from customers, you know, how they're getting on with their product, you know, would they like to try one of our other products, you know, what feedback can they give us. It's very much about sort of the outreach element um, 
uh, and really finding out from customers how they're getting on with that product and would they like to try some something else. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, it's it sounds like the that role borders on some of the market research marketing things. Mm. And if you look at the the some of the marketing roles regarding social media, mm-hmm. they've been tasked mm-hmm. with replying to requests or mm. Instagram mm. questions mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Twitter replies. Mm. But the question was around where do you draw the line between customer service dealing with issues mm. or product mm. issues or mm. concerns or this doesn't mm. fit right mm. versus having the marketing department pick it up and then not necessarily necessarily being trained in the, in the sort of the, the flow of, of things. Are those two merged in your company? Yeah, I mean, for us, we basically deal with all social media inquiries come into customer service and we use a tool called Zendesk, which is integrated with a lot of different platforms and that works really well for us. Uh, because to your point, we invest a lot of time and effort into training our customer care team to ensure that they know about the products, they know our processes, they know you know how to explain to people how the products fit, what they should use it for, you know when should they use our health foods, when you know if you're pregnant not to use our slender milk, whatever. Um, so we prefer that all product-related, you know, inquiries come into the customer care team because they're the ones that actually are the custodians of the knowledge that we have spent a long time investing in training them on. Um, and then marketing can focus on actually outreach and lead generation and, you know, bringing people to, you know, bringing traffic to our owned assets so we can, we can generate sales. Okay, cool. Well, let's, let's move to the future of retail. Um, I, I've heard people uh, fear monger around the death of retail or Amazon and you know, Alibaba have killed uh, distribution channels and selling direct on your site is, is almost pointless because the, the, the costs required to drive traffic is, is in excess of what you can do, just piggybacking of other people's platforms. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are, are you, I mean, you're kind of in that early days where you probably already built up that traffic and probably can afford it, but maybe if you answer it from the Zagora point of view, but maybe from a founder starting a new retail business, how would you do it differently today? I certainly think that the consumers, um, you know, first port of call, you know, is, I mean, Amazon and eBay drive something like 20% of traffic, respectively, in both the US and the UK. So clearly, you know, um, it's challenging to drive traffic away from them. I think as a brand owner, you do have to have a differentiated offering. You do have to offer something that they can't find there. Um, Consumer shopping on Amazon, I think Amazon is very, you know, optimized for cost, efficiency and lowest price. I do, we do, although see consumers that still go to, to the brand website to check, you know, consumers are very price sensitive these days. So you do have to have a differentiated offering to be able to drive traffic um, to your, you need to optimize as much as you can your on-site uh, metrics, conversion rates, you know, ability to actually get people to come to check out. Um, and that's something that, you know, when we talk to other founders, we, you know, there's more that people can do there. We certainly focus very much on on-site metrics. Um, and then it really is about, you know, creating a customized experience um, that would help people, you know, bring people back because, you know, we offer something different than the customer buying from Amazon does. And, you know, we'll provide sampling, we'll provide gift with purchase, we'll provide a better experience in terms of the delivery experience. If you're somebody who's looking for that, then great. If you're somebody who happens to have Prime and you always go on Amazon, then you're just that customer that always goes on Amazon. Um, so it's about having a differentiated offering and then making sure that actually the customer experience is fantastic when they get it. So that's in terms of maybe a company like yours that has mm-hmm. managed to mm-hmm. start early. But mm-hmm. if you're a brand new company, do you even have room for that? I mean, wouldn't it make sense just to, to piggyback off of the trust that Amazon has built 
and then going down that path? Or do you think that there's still value in, in sort of trying to force your way through the discovery piece? I think it depends on what you would like to do. If you're in the business of selling, purely selling product, and we have we also operate our own Amazon stores. If you're in the business of purely selling product and all you want to do is get your product out there in front of people, then I would say, yes, you're probably best placed on making sure that you're on, you know, main distribution channels like Amazon, like, and, you know, depending on what your brand are, looking at retailers and, you know, other distribution where you can piggyback on the trust of retailers. If you're in the business of creating a brand and you see value to that, um, then I think you need to balance the ability to get distribution with having a strong brand presence um, because that's something that becomes an asset when you are looking to get distribution. So while Amazon is a interesting, you know, it's obviously a, a great channel, obviously the traffic that you can get on Amazon very much depends on the search volume for a particular thing. So for example, we see the best performance in terms of Amazon for our products is when people actually search for Zagora, which means that we need to be generating uh, demand for Zagora. And then some of that demand actually filters through to Amazon, you know, for a particular kind of customer. So you still need to be doing a good job of generating demand where that demand gets harvested. You need to be in as many touch points as you can so that people can find you. Um, and that's what we have found, you know, if depending on what, so, you know, we've, we've experimented with online advertising, offline advertising. If you spend your money on advertising, but your demand, you know, you're not positioned in the right way, then you're wasting, you know, we've done cabs, we've done buses, we've done offline above the line and customers will go into John Lewis and say, hey, Zagora, we want to buy you from John Lewis, but we're not there. And so the demand generated for the marketing activity, you know, doesn't get harvested the right way. Um, so to a large extent, it's about building your brand, but then being in as many touch points as you can so that people can find you. Hmm. Walk us through the the cycle that Zagora has gone through because it sounds like some of these experiments might have gone well, some of them mm-hmm. have gone poorly. Mm-hmm. But you were sharing with me that you know you went through this phase of hyper expansion, things kind of went rosy for a little bit, mm-hmm. and then things went not so good for a mm-hmm. while, and then you've now optimized things to, to scale up again. Walk us through kind of what that was like, that journey, and, and what was going on during that restructuring period. What what did you end up having to fix? That really was the enabler for where you are today. So our business went from zero to 11 million in revenue in the first year. And then, you know, our main distribution channel at the time sort of dried up. So we used Groupon as a big distribution channel, which was great in 2011, 2012. Um, but then, you know, things changed. So we, you know, it didn't work for us so well afterwards. Um and so what we what happened is that of course as a business that was growing, um, you know we had big overhead, large team, um, and so it was. Uh, we went through a period of consolidation, shall we say, where you know we optimized our cost base. We made sure that you know if we are, um, uh, you know, as a young business, what we did is we built in a lot of fixed cost. Um, and I think that was, you know, very challenging for us. We were in a way lucky that, you know, we don't necessarily have retail spaces or retail environment because, you know, as I said, we've never, you know, taken VC funding. So we always had to rely on funds generated from the business. Um, but we still build up a big cost base, you know, offices, people around the world, teams, um, um, and our operations weren't optimized as well as we would have liked to from a cost perspective, from an efficiency perspective, from being able to maintain customer relationships. Um, so, what, you know, We've gone through a period of um, reducing the, you know, the fixed cost base, uh, making sure that we are a lot leaner 
um, making sure that our focus in terms of investment is on things which the customer sees. Um, so things like, you know, our website, making sure the website looks fantastic, making sure the product experience is great. So we really have refocused from, I guess, as a young business, it's very easy to, when you, when you, you know, get big fairly fast, um, a lot of it gets to your head, <laughs> so, you know, being completely frank. Um, and so it's important to get back to actually being, you know, realizing that you're there just to serve the customer. And so all the investments in the business need to go to serving the customer, making sure the customer experience is great. And that's really what we have done. So we're a lot leaner today. Um, we are a, a business that's growing. We're excited about the growth. We're excited about the new product markets that, you know, we're going into like the supplements market. You know, we're looking at expanding our distribution again, but we're very careful about where we invest our time, where we invest our resources, um, how we manage our working capital. Um, and so, so for us, the future is very exciting, but it's because we have gone through that period of, you know, over expansion, making sure, you know, not having our operations in place. Whereas, you know, today we're super laser focused. If we are launching a new warehouse, we will be in the warehouse for a week beforehand. We will be showing the warehouse team how to pack products. We will be testing orders before they go, before they go in, um, uh, you know, before we start dispatching to customers to make sure that, you know, everything, you know, gets dispatched the right way, you know, things reach destinations and so on. Um, and so it's been actually a very valuable experience from us because we, we, Rather than trying to do too many things, I guess the way to, to explain it is best. Rather than trying to do too many things, we try to focus on one thing at a time, get that right, and then move on to the next thing that's going to help us grow our business. Hmm. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, not to negotiate against yourself, which I think is very important. Um, if you're somebody that thinks a lot, um, it's quite easy to start negotiating against yourself, but actually, you know, going out there and just you know, giving it a go and just being open-minded. I think, it, you know, time and time again has shown that actually it's remarkable what you can do um, and what your team can do together. Hmm. It sounds like there's a story behind that. Some some negotiations didn't go the right way. No, I just think it's, you know, it's been remarkable. Like when we launched the Gore, I mean, I had a great idea for a product, but I never imagined that we would sell a million products in like six years. Yeah. Um, and it was just because we we kind of trusted our gut and we thought, okay, so clearly a lot of women want to get in shape. Let's go, you know, and we got our message out there, but it's quite remarkable, you know, and I kind of need to pinch myself (laughs) every day to think that we have, you know, so many customers have trusted us to deliver product to them. Um, And it's a very special feeling. What's left on your bucket list then? Oh God, so many things to do now that I have two children. (laughs) There is, uh, you know, so many things. Uh, I certainly don't want to go into space, but um, you know, things to travel. Uh, you know, we're we're really focused on on growing our business and really working uh, to deliver a great experience. Um, and so, I think for the next ten years, our our life will be very much invested in making sure that we can expand, deliver new products, expand our distribution, um, and and really work hard to you know, help as many women as we can both get healthier, but also, you know, through our giving side, inspire women in launching businesses, being more active, you know, we're exploring a lot of different avenues for our giving work. Um, and really hope that, um, you know, we can be somebody that our kids can be proud of. So what's one mistake that you, you see a lot of retail brands make? I think in today's environment, a lot of businesses, of course, invest in brand, which is important, and the consumer certainly, uh, you know, expects that a lot of money is invested in content, which is remarkably expensive. 
But if you're a brand that's been going for, you know, 10, 15 years and you're still losing money, I mean, what is the fucking point? You know, I think that at the end of the day, as a business, you need to provide a service which customers expect and, you know, benefit from. But you also need to be a business that's profitable because that's the only way that you're going to survive in the long term. Um, so for us, it's always been about, you know, creating brand, but also balancing the needs of the business and making sure that we are sustainable, um, uh, you know, a sustainable service that can survive and serve our customers for years to come. Mm. Well, there you have it, guys. Don't be losing money. Well, thanks for joining us, Desi. Uh, much appreciate your, your comments and your story. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Carlos. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.